All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 407. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we have Julia Trebbing. And for all of you who have followed, she is the wife of Dr. William Trebbing, who gave us that fantastic book, Goodbye Germ Theory. By the way, that's a must-have book in, in the era that we are. Uh, we're going to come at things in a slightly different angle, and Julia will describe her area of expertise. But welcome, Jason. And a beautiful good morning. How goes it? Do we have anything? Uh, for Episode 400 will be behind us by the time this goes. That is correct. And I hope everyone had a lot to think about with that one. Makes me feel like I got to make a joke, long train running or something, but let's get right to it. We're beginning a little late this morning. Welcome, Dr. Trebbing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And congratulations on over 400 episodes. Ooh, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. So go ahead and tell people who you are. And if you have links or other things that they could go check you out, go ahead and, and cite all those right now, please. Thank you. So as you know, I am Will Trebbing's wife, and I specialize in working with children and families. So that is what I am here to talk to you about today. I've been doing this work for over 30 years. I'm involved in a lot of research, and I have lectured over the years on true discipline, the ages and stages of child development, and trauma-informed therapy. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Perfect. Um, we're going to get into things, and we have an hour one to contend with. I think uh, I heard as I was taking care of my mother this morning in the background something about, oh, there's a new law. You can't talk about racism or gender or something like that. They're trying to push into the schools. The heat in the world we live in, particularly for those of us that want to have a conversation, it's become so tricky, but we're going to do what we can here. Do you want to follow the bullets, Dr. Trebbing, as we wrote them, or do you want to do more of a free-for-all and use them as a guide? Well, I think it's helpful for us to follow a structure just to keep us on track and make sure we get the most amount of information out that we can. Um, though I would like to kind of start off and sort of set the stage, if you will. It's all you. Please. Thank you. <laughs> so we have a pandemic-related national emergency that's been declared in the mental health field. So in part one, I want to talk about the pandemic and how childhood has been compromised, diagnosed, and rewritten. And then in part two, I want to discuss resiliency and home care and how to build the child and family strong. All right. So basically, just to make it perfectly clear, in, in hour one, we're going to talk about issues. And in hour two, Dr. Trebbing's going to try to offer things that can be done. Does that sum it up, Dr. Trebbing? Yes, that's great. Perfect. Go ahead. Take it away. Thank you. There is a pandemic-related national emergency that's been declared in the mental health of children and adolescents. This is according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Children's Hospital Association, and the Center for Disease Control. But honestly, we've had a mental health epidemic for many, many years. Only now, we have something to blame it on. So we'll start with some overarching issues. Childhood, it's been compromised, diagnosed, and rewritten. Masks were mandated. Social distancing was required. Schools went online. Lockdowns resulted in social isolation and quarantining happened. So what I've wanted to do is I wanted to sort of highlight the poignancy of it and take a few minutes to set the stage, if you will. 
Hey, you've said a couple things. Do you mind if I bring one up? Like I've thought about this a lot. I always tell my listeners I'm driving through my little town here in Rhode Island and there's all the children out on the field playing soccer with masks on. And I just want to jam on the brakes and scream at the top of my lungs. What is wrong with all you people? But when you really, that one thing alone, young people, you can't see a face. You don't have that recognition. There's none of the social cues that would be normal. And that, you know, think of a baby sitting there watching all this go on. I mean, this is really quite a thing, isn't it? It is astounding. It is. It, and, and I think that's why they're say, declaring the mental health of children as a national emergency. But yes, there's, there's so much going on. And what I wanted to do was sort of set the stage in terms of using the Maslow's hierarchy of needs to just kind of give you a sense of where these children have been, what it was like for them, right? So if we, on the bottom tier, we have physiological. This includes food, water, health, shelter, sleep, and of course, their very breath. All of this was compromised. Without schools, free programs, children were no longer ensured breakfast and lunch, and many of them didn't have adequate nutrition, let alone quality water. Sports were canceled. Lifestyles were sedentary. There was significant weight gain. I know it was, they said up to 29 pounds in adults during the pandemic, but the children gained significant weight as well. There was no access to school health services. And of course, if parents were, if their employment was disrupted, there was economic distress, issues of shelter. And that's just on the base level. You know, the hybrid schedule threw off daily routines, a hybrid schedule that doesn't make sense for young children, alternate nights, They stayed up later, watched TV. Now so many of them have sleep issues. Even when children could go outside, they had to wear their masks that compromised their very breath. Right, Crow? You talk about them running around wearing a mask and breathing heavily. It just, it's a Petri dish. It makes no sense. It's insanity. It's insanity. And it doesn't even touch on the spiritual ideas because the people who follow this podcast comprehend what used to be comprehended that your breath is your spirit. And for those of us who have a spiritual side, the ramifications of what you're describing start to become horrific because it's not just the physical. And I know that think, think about this, Dr. Trebbing, what about the queue up before that happened? All the things you're describing where the gaming had the children barely outside at the level you and I may have been when we were young, it was already queued up in advance and, and it was played off in a way. Yes, so much of it has been keyed up in advance, right? So, so we have all of those. The, how can we even focus on emotional comfort, social success, and academic prowess when, when we have all this other, when children don't even feel safe in terms of the safety needs? So that's the second of Maslow's tier as we work our way up the pyramid. There were increased accidental injuries, suicides skyrocketed, And experimental shots were offered to children as young as five, like it was a good thing. It's appalling. And it was not just a concern for their own personal safety, but also their fear for others. They learned too much, too young about death. They were frightened for their parents' health. They feared their grandparents would die. And in actuality, many of them did. Children were frequently reminded to fear germs, a theory that has not even been proven as you know, from the book, Goodbye Germ Theory by my husband. (laughs) They kept pulling down their masks to breathe better, to decrease anxiety, and they were hassled, guilted, chained, if not terrorized. Pull your your mask up, pull your mask out. Outdoors, 
They found their playgrounds were taped up like crime scenes. And often when they looked into the face of a masked adult, instead of seeing a smile, all they would see is these big, round, fearful eyes. This is what our young children coming into our world were experiencing wherever they went. There were constant reminders the world was unsafe. And this is our one task is to help our children feel safe in the world. But they were constantly reminded otherwise. The world needed heavy sterilization and toxic cleaning products. They were regularly asked to sanitize despite how it dehydrated their skin. And some hand sanitizers contain tricolcin, which is an ingredient that can affect hormones and fertility. Many hand sanitizers contain thiophilates and parabens, which lead to early onset puberty, increased incidence of obesity, and even cancer. So we've got these children. They've got physiological, you know, their very breath is compromised. They've got safety issues. And then if we move up the hierarchy, what we want is for them to feel loved and belonging. But did they feel loved and connected with their families? How did the social distancing impact them? Were they socially isolated or able to see friends, hang out with neighbors, text online, or have virtual get-togethers? You know, inter- interestingly, you talk about the breath, but I also crow, but I also think about that, that six feet, you can no longer feel the heart energy of another from six feet away. Or interact with what some might call an aura or an energy field. But what's worse is we've done the symbology. When you take a dead body in our culture, you put it six feet under. Um, there's no portion of this um, that I don't, I don't think anyone could argue the things you're pointing out. Uh, how do you deny any of this? But most of us, we're grown. We may not be thinking of the younger generation that's had to contend with this. I'm sure parents have. But again, I've driven by plenty of fields where all the parents are sitting there in a daze. It's a heck of a thing. But I don't want to interrupt your, your train of thought. Go ahead. Thank you. You know, so, so here's these young children that we just want to hold and snuggle, but hugging was abolished. So they didn't even learn about that warmth and that comfort. You know, touching was forbidden, or if it happened, they were required soap and water. Can you imagine what this is going to look like as they get older? Those children who have to count to 20 to clean up because they touched somebody else. You know, we, we visited homes. I asked children, how are you feeling? How are, how are you doing? And of course, their answers are related to how the adults around them were coping. I, I know Crow, well, I'll come back to that actually at that point. Um, the most common emotions reported by these children were sad, nervous, worried, mad, and matter. And we will see that fallout when they come back to school, as we will get to shortly. In trauma, we just try to get by, get through the day. So we asked, what are you looking forward to? They weren't looking forward to returning to school, which is revealing. They just wanted to see their friends. All of us remember back when you were a child and you were denied something that you really wanted and think about the scope of how important it was to your young mind at that part. It seems like, oh, life just ended. I didn't get to do this thing I want, but now multiply this out over every day and remove the friends. And what's also a part of this that I always think about is so many of these children are then stuck at home gaming and it's just a violence extravaganza. Right. And that's all going into their souls, right? That's going into their souls and the soul can't distinguish what is real and what they saw on a screen. And so that's just another tragic outcome. But as you say, that was going on long before the pandemic got queued up. So so now we have the fourth hierarchy and that's where achievement, accomplishment and self-esteem is. 
While some children flourished academically online, many had significant learning gaps, and others with limited access to internet or no access to instructional materials, computers, or internet, they missed chunks of information, huge chunks of information for a year. The children's achievement gap widened even further as the pandemic disproportionately impacted families of lower socioeconomic status and communities of color. And those families who could afford to get their children online, the distance learning model was no luxury. It required skills beyond their maturity to pay attention, to sit still for hours, to accomplish assignments. And maybe they had a parent nearby to help them remain seated and on task. The children argued, parents complained, and they both reported not feeling good enough. So even if they could work their way up that ladder because they had their physiological needs met, because they felt safe, because they felt love and belonging, it's difficult to achieve and accomplish and feel good about themselves given what the environment was like. And finally, at the top of the pyramid, we have self-actualization. Two examples would be creativity and morality. In many homes, parents juggled roles. They were parenting, they were working, and they had to play teacher. As the pandemic continued, children's difficult behaviors grew and emotions ran thin. Creativity was replaced with long hours of screen time, gaming, internet, phone, and television. And regarding doing the right thing, online learning resulted in colossal cheating. You know, I'd never thought about that. It's all, are, are you implying that the answer sheet is right there online? Oh, you have no idea, right? <laughs> so you can Google your answer yep. or you can get a la- an, an app like Photomath. Photomath has over, I just checked it before we talked, it has over 280 million downloads. And what all of the student has to do is focus their camera on any printed math problem and the answer plus the step-by-step work to get the answer is provided. Wow. I know. I know. It's Someone's making a fortune at the expense of knowing something in this world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think now, you. I mean, it used to be, oh, they cheated with a calculator, but now you don't even have to do anything but just focus your screen, you know, take that photo. I remember when calculators came in, you know, I was born in the early sixties when calculators first came around, that was absolutely universally treated as cheating in any math class. Yeah. Now, by the time 10, maybe 15 years had gone by, if you were in, I don't know, college or junior college and you were doing higher math, you might go out and get a special calculator to help you. But before that, that was absolutely unacceptable, considered cheating. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, Will and I like to use cash wherever we go. And boy, do we throw people off when they see cash and have to make change. <laughs> or like if something comes to, you know, $16 and two cents and I'm like, oh, I have the two pennies. They're like, oh, no, 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 that's okay. That's okay. You know, because they just haven't learned the math. The machine in front of them does all that, right? So when the power goes out, that adds to another problem. Nobody yeah. can, nobody can count change. Yeah, yeah. When you were dealing with the children, and maybe they're too young, but did any of them actually come up with the notion of challenging the validity of what was actually going on? Like, hey, this just doesn't seem right. That's a good question. And it depends where they are developmentally, but ultimately... It's based on, you know, Crow, I think you'll appreciate this because I know you like Rudolf Steiner, but 
what are young children doing? They are imitating the people around them. I always say true discipline is in the people around the child, right? Because if they are absorbing their environment, Maria Montessori says that, they absorb their environment like little sponges. So if you as the parent say, no, we're not wearing masks, or if you and the parent take a position on uh, social distancing, and, and yes, you can have your friends, right? Depending upon what you, the parent, put forth, that's that's reflected back in the children. It's such a critical point. If I think back uh, to my childhood and I had to have an opinion, I know exactly what it would be. It would have been the closest version that I could possibly come up with that I thought was my father's point of view. Yeah. Yes, Crow. That's it, right? Yeah, that that would have been it until even, you know, and the thing is, is even as I was moving beyond that, you start to get into junior high and get a little more independence in a social situation where they're in adults. Uh, my, my frame of reference would have been what would my father think was right here? Yes. Well, that's beautiful. But as an adult, you get to filter. But up until the change of teeth around age seven, you're basically absorbing your environment. That's why the environment is so critical with the young, right? So we, so, so I think what people don't realize, and this is sort of like, I'm going to come on strong here, but, but I got a lot of recommendations to follow. But what people don't realize is that if you're devastated, like by the pandemic, for example, if you're grieving, if you're sad every day and look at your children's faces because they've absorbed your gestures and they absorb them right into the bloodstream where they'll find expression. They find expression in breathing, circulation, digestion. It's all impacted. Their children's physical bodies are organized in accordance with how those around them behave. I mean, this is such a huge point and a little depressing for some parents, I know, but we're going to get, we're going to get to a lot of ideas and recommendations um, that will be very helpful. Uh, Carl Jung said it, I think, best when he said, if there's anything we wish to change in the child, we should first examine it and see whether it is not something that could be better changed in ourselves. Based on everything that you've been laying down, I think one of the takeaways that is in my mind is parenting has always been apex important, even more so right now, because those children, they, you know, they, they do, they follow example, they respect mm-hmm. the parent. And if as a parent, you're not doing the best job, that's probably going to have effect on the young ones around you. Yes. Yes. The question is, And this is a pressure point, but the question is, when I am around children, was that imitation worthy? You know, I keep needing to look in the mirror and ask myself, was that imitation worthy? Look, if it's not, you can replay it in your mind so that you're set up to do better next time. You can apologize. Children, first thing out of my children's mouth when I say I'm sorry is that's okay, mom, you know, because I'm teaching that they're they're absorbing that. And then they'll give that back to me. We can do rewinds and we can do do-overs. It's no pressure. We're not perfect. We're just striving, right? We're striving to do our best. And so imitation worthy is a great contemplation. I'm trying to fathom where we've actually reached. It looks like we've touched on some and jumped over others. Well, let's talk about about that mathematical equation for mental illness. Okay. You know, that's, that's one of the things I really want to touch on here in the state that I'm in, the state of Rhode Island. You do not want to go into those medical computers as deficient mentally somehow. Um, the system that's been put in place, and I've actually seen examples where people 
they can no longer speak for themselves because the system has basically labeled them as mentally deficient in some way. So it doesn't matter what that individual says anymore. What they think or feel doesn't really count in, in the eyes of the system. This is what we've been noticing. And another thing is when you go in here, one of the first questions from some of the, you know, just a regular doctor's visit is, have you been abused by your family members? Um, all these other questions that relate to mental health. And that's new. A few years ago, we didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, you know, it's um, sad. It's frightening. It's, it's, it's a different world and everything is digitized, right? So right. permanent um, record. So we have to be careful what we say, even how we diagnose children for on and what we put on insurance forms you know people who do not have medical degrees at the insurance company call up and want to want to talk oh they're suicidal we'll give you six visits what my word right but if we don't give them enough information then they don't give payment it's best to not use the insurance companies if your child you know if you're seeking care if you can pay out of pocket what's really the best thing to do Everyone should just play back the sentences she just said. I have so many observations of people going into the system and saying the wrong words, and it changes everything. And I know firsthand examples of individuals who can't speak for themselves anymore because in a computer somewhere, some MD put a certain word and referred them to a certain place. You know, this is so different than when I was young. When I was young, the only place... Uh, that we ever really saw this was on Coronado Bridge in San Diego. There was a suicide hotline. Now, now this is just everywhere within the medical establishments that I'm familiar with. Right. And, and think about it, because if you were diagnosed with ADHD, you can't go into the military. You know, I have a child who that's all he wanted to do in life, but not with that diagnosis. You know, and the, di- and the diagnosis don't leave. They follow the children. By the way, it is your right as a parent, and we need to talk about parents' rights. It is your right as a parent to be able to say, um, you know, can I have the information out of my child's school file? You can take that information. You don't know it. You don't do it. Get it out of there, especially because I want to talk about how we can, when I think of mental illness, I'm going to put it on a continuum when we talk about this mathematical equation I've come up with. But, you know, you can come back. And I want to talk about what you can do at home in order to help your child within a season to be feeling better and your whole home to be feeling better. After a year, what we've, we've had this, this year of unmet physiological needs, worldwide fear, feeling unsafe, socially isolated, physically inactive. There's so much. Oh, and of course, for some children, they've also had two shots of poison. So Dr. Trebing, that idea of the parents um, having a record, I don't know, expunged or whatever, you know, something removed from a child's record. Let's touch on that for a second. Yeah. Are you saying that a, a, a parent can go into a school and say, I'd like to see my child's records and say, what's this? Get it out. Yep. You can take it. That's your right as a parent. So that's kind of an important point because by proxy, that would let parents know that they should be saying, my child's spirit will not be veiled. My child will not breathe carbon you know, uh, byproduct all day. They will not sit here and, and breathe exhaust fumes. Isn't that by extension what a parent should start to learn when they take an interest in what the records are saying? Absolutely. I think that's great. And also, you know, if you have a diagnosis and we know how powerful the teacher's expectations are on 
on how well you're going to achieve in that class over the next year. I mean, there's a fascinating study. It's kind of old now. John Holt did a study where he went into schools in England and he told the teachers the wrong, the back backwards. So he told one teacher, you know, you, next year you're getting this really bright class. You're going to love them. He told the other teacher, you know, this class, class is kind of slow. And, and, but what they had done is they had switched it. It was the other way around. And the children performed to the teacher's expectation, not to their ability. Wow. Yeah. That, <laughs> that goes in so many directions. I don't even know how you start to break that down. Yeah. Well, we need to keep thinking about that in terms of how do we view our own children, right? Because it all starts at home. Have schools changed anything as far as how much they're trying to get into a year as a result of the past two years? Well, here's the thing. They are, many, many children are behind the eight ball, right? So unfortunately, they can't keep up or you you can't do the, the third graders now in fourth grade, don't have the foundational math skills to be able to do the long division, for example, for one of many. Yeah. Wow. So schools were already a place that I think they were just pushing learning. And I think that they are filled with stress, uh, toxic stress. And I've had my issue with the schools over the years in terms of their expectations of children. You know, for example, we've got five-year-olds and they're pushing them to read. But you know what? If you push a five-year-old to learn to read before the body is, before the brain is ready, the wrong area of the brain learns to read. So now when we have a few teeth out, which is a good way to measure it, after a few teeth are out, now the correct area of the brain can read and maybe it will cro- they will cross over and it'll correct and they'll get to that higher brain functioning or maybe they'll just never enjoy classics or, and, or maybe they'll be dyslexic. You know, these are the kinds of problems where the, when we force that early learning, we force them before they're ready. And yet around that change of teeth, they're ready to read and they're insatiable if we haven't taken that away from them. You know, Dr. Trebing, you remind me, we're so big on nature has no lie. Uh, if you learn something from nature, which would be a child losing his first teeth, uh, if I remember correctly, I want to ask you if you ever heard that. I think it was the Bushmen of the Kalahari, their measure for when a child had reached a certain point was when they could take their arm over their head and touch the ear on the opposite side of that arm, which is another physical measure of where they are. It reminds me of what you just said in a slightly different way. Yeah. Well, you know, you can go onto my website, which is creative therapies with N's and S, creative therapies.net, and you will find I have what kindergarten readiness looks like, and I have a check sheet for what first grade readiness looks like. And I've broken it down by what I call it, it's my made up thing, it's called EBIPS, which stands for emotional, behavioral, intellectual, physical, and social. And I've, I've broken it down into all those areas, Crow. And if your child is not doing all those things, including what you just described, hand goes up in the air, over, and grabs the other ear, if they're not doing all these things, they're not ready. Now, is, I can already hear the comments coming in. Is the idea here that one size fits all? Well, let me use an example. Suppose you had a four-year-old who, of their own volition, 
picked up books and started learning to read. Uh, it, it, there, there's got to be an element of uniqueness. I mean, right? Some some children are going to be different than other children. Uh, you're going to have a, a musical prodigy every now and again that's playing Beethoven before you know yeah. around the time they walk or something like that. Absolutely, and we have to we have to trust, right? As parents, we have to trust that. But I also want to say that, and, and and you're bringing up a really good point. But just to to kind of tease that out a little bit. During the first seven years of life, we're really working on growing, right? All the organs, everything internal, the brain, everything is just growing, building larger. And the work is physical. It's out running around, playing, getting sunshine every day. It's activity, right? And, and if we have that solid foundation, then the next, we're setting up the stages, then the next stage goes better. But if we don't, if we force... And, and, I, and I'm using the word force and you're saying, no, maybe this is just a natural prodigy and, that, and maybe that's where the, uh, the distinction is. But, but if we have children reading when they should be out there running around now, what happens is later on in life. Well, first of all, you can tell who these kids are because they're pale, right? They're pale and they're anxious. And then later on in life, they just don't have the same vitality. So it affects for a lifetime. That's why it's so important. We talk about what's happened with this pandemic and what we need to do about it because children will be affected for a lifetime. You know, I I can overlay at, at some point when these adults come in for therapy, we'll be able to go look at this one fixated at five and a half. They must have been five and a half during the pandemic. We'll be able to see that because at five and a half, you sort of have this natural propensity towards OCD, okay? But but it moves through. But what if during the pandemic, when you're in this developmental stage, you are told, you know, oh, wash, sanitize, oh, 20 seconds, did you what? Did you touch that person? Pull your mask, you know, all this stuff. But it doesn't move through. And so now they're in school right now and they're six, seven years old and they're presenting with OCD. That's why I want to, I want to talk about that mathematical equation. Well, it, it occurs to me that many of the things that you're laying down are basically ensuring that a child's early start will be separated from the natural world. You open by talking about weird sleep cycles. When I was young, sun went down, I went down. Sun came up, I went up. But you're mm. talking about all the screen time up into the nighttime. And then the idea of we're sitting this child down because we want them reading Gone with the Wind by the time they're in high school and they're not going outside. Isn't this all separating children from the natural cycles? Yes, absolutely. I love that idea of up with the sun, down with the sun. You know, there the, all these natural cycles that the children... So, so the screen imitates sunshine. It's not sunshine, but it imitates it. So when you get off that screen at night, and let's say you get off the screen around midnight, now the melatonin says, oh, sun's going down, and it takes about 90 minutes to fall into a good sleep after the sun goes down, right? So that's, so those are our natural rhythms, but put the electronic babysitter in front of the child and the sleep. So many children have sleep disorders right now. You know, it's crazy. Um, I was told that there was this new thing a few years ago. It was called F-Lux. I think it's F.Lux. Of course, the word light is in there. You install it on your computer. You, it finds out where you are. So as the sun goes down in your area, it begins to remove the blue from the picture signal. And at first I thought, well, 
you know, everyone knows me. I'm interested in these ideas. That's that's straight. But what I found was the very first night I put it on, I worked till about eight or nine writing something on my computer, and I went to sleep so much more quickly and much deeper. And what's funny is now I use it. If I see my computer and it's orange, my mind is saying, up oh, the computer's orange. I shouldn't be staring at that anymore. It's too late. Go do something else. <laughs> Any, anyhow, anyone interested, F-Lux, the little thing you put on your box and it, it cuts the blue light as the sun goes down. And it's a good indicator that you've been looking at a screen too long. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great tip. Thank you. So let's take a child who's learned to read too early. And so they're a little pale and they're a little nervous, right? So what I call that is an Achilles heel. It could be a, a child who's a little squirmy, dreamy, and fast or slow. But when you have whatever your Achilles heel is, and then you have cumulative stress, right? So Achilles heel plus cumulative stress from the day in, day out pandemic, it equals a disorder further along down the continuum. Right. So whatever your vulnerability is, and we can look at different children. So that little squirmy, dreamy child is now ADHD, right? The, the pale and occasionally nervous children further on down with, with cumulative stress presents with anxiety. I got to ask you about ADHD. Is that more or less a way for the systems that be to describe a thing? I don't know what, how to ask the question I want to ask. What's the reality from your point of view? of such a thing, because I think most people think, oh, they got ADHD. That's it for the rest of their life. This is what they are, you know, get out the Ritalin or whatever. Um, yeah. And by the way, that's another thing. When I was in school, I didn't know a single child that had been put on some drug like that when, when I was back in the seventies, maybe, right. um, but it's so commonplace now from what I understand. It is so commonplace. They say it's overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed and, you know, some say it's boys being boys, if you get a really strict teacher in third grade, which is when we see the most children, boys diagnosed with ADHD, you know, you get a strict teacher and you have a neurophysiological need to move, you're in trouble. A teacher's going to recommend, say it's ADHD and start making recommendations. You know, I like to think of children having more recess, not re not less recess. You know, what, what do they do when a child is moving around too much in their chair? They take away recess. They need more recess. <laughs> they need to be, you know, they, they need to move. Hey, little Jimmy, could you please go up to the nurse's office, take this big, heavy book, right? Because we're giving feedback to the body and take it to the nurse, then come on back down. And, and okay, so now the child has had some feedback to the body and maybe they're able to sit a little more easier than just because they're told to. You know, later on, I can say, hey, Jimmy, could you go get that book back from the nurse, right? Go pick up that heavy book. Again, that's that the heavy lifting is the concept. And then walk down all those stairs and bring it back to me. So let's ask the tough question. Is this the system pre-echoing what was about to follow? This big change where all these types of things started to label the children. And as you just pointed out, maybe even implement things that are even more unhelpful to the child. Doesn't that feel like a system that's gone off the rails? Uh, and maybe if we want to be bold, queuing up for what we're experiencing now? Yes. Yes. And we're, and we're just getting started because, you know, Look how we've been queued up with autism. Again, Crow, we can go back to when we were young, right? We never saw anybody no, who was autistic. 
or my mom, she's, she's dying of dementia right now. And almost so every, every friend I know of hers has a level of dementia. When I was young here in Rhode Island, there were 80, 90 year old neighbors. They had their marbles. So there's two things at the, at the young end, we have the, whatever they want to call it, autism spectrum. And at the upper end, we have forms of dementia. And this is absolutely different from sixties and seventies. Right. Right. And we can get into that if you want, but you know, I'd like to, I think this is a thing. I think that the parents that are listening right now may have to be contending with the younger age group we've mentioned. And I know damn well that all the folks getting to be 50 out there and their parents are, they're going, it'll be so rare when one of them doesn't have to deal with what I'll just call dementia, because I don't think one size fits all at some level. So let's talk about that for a minute. I'm certain so many people listening to us speak are going to have to deal with one end or the other, or maybe both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, and you might've anticipated this, you know, we need to talk about the vaccines. What is in those vaccines, right? We've got, and how many vaccines are children having prior to age six? You know, I, I have a source here that says 101. Come on. Jason uh-huh. did this once. Jason, remember the list you brought that there it was over 100, but they were much older than age six, weren't they? Yeah, I think it was like uh, 60 something for the younger ones. And then by the time they got up to sixth grade, I think it was. This is why my vet won't let me in with my dog because they. this is everywhere. My dog was supposed to get 12 shots and I said, you're not giving them any. And they said, you can't come here anymore, but let's get off my dog because that's not the same thing and get back to what you're saying, Dr. Trevi. So how many shots by age six? 101. My word, there's the 11. 101 shots, right? And yep. you know, back in what, 1986, they came out with that National Vaccine Injury Act. So that passed that that allowed so that there was immunity or liability. Is that the special court that forces people to go through some special kangaroo court or something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. But what I know is that when that act was passed, the number of mandated childhood vaccines skyrocketed. You know, in in when we think about in the 80s, autism was like statistically one in 10,000. And then in the 90s, one in 2,500. And then prior to the pandemic. We can look at developing. I can't go to the grocery store without seeing a child, often a boy, statistically a boy. You know, they're, the, the light in their eyes is diminished. They have sensory issues, social emotional deficits, restricted repetitive play patterns. And where's the validity that these vaccines do what they claim to do? <laughs> the human race seems yeah. to have survived That's before the 20th question. century to me. Come on, Dr. Trebbing, let's see if you can pull a rabbit out of your hat. You want me to what? Tell you about the validity of vaccines? Right? Is there I got a basis? no rabbit for that. <laughs> what are you asking? So is there an actual validity for all these vaccines or did the human race seem to survive for everything pre-20th century just fine? I'm sure there were some issues, but. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that research. I just know that, you know, we all complained about thermosol, right? So they said, oh, we'll take that out. And then they threw in aluminum. Okay, how's that? So think about it. You know, even if you 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 have a mandatory flu shot every year, of course, and I'm so sorry, but you are going to end up with dementia. Well, let's let's look at the word mandatory there for a second. Uh, they will may use the word mandatory, but 
anyone out there who values the divine spark they were granted at the zygote, nothing is mandatory until you decide to do it. Yes. Yes. Critical point. I just want to make the point, all these clever words that have been carefully psychologically put together, like mandate, oh, we've got to do this. It's a mandate. All these words they use, people should understand it's your life, it's your body. You were granted this by the creator or however you choose to think about however you got all this. The choice is yours. You have free will. No one can force you. Yes, that's good. And they, that, that's good. And of course, you know, we, we, many took this experimental shot because they felt forced to, they felt compelled to, they were frightened into it, whatever they were mind controlled, you know, how, however be it, not only did they take it, but they gave it to as children as young as five who have a 99.99% dot, dot, 9999, whatever percentage of being absolutely fine, even if they got, even if they were what asymptomatic. It blows the mind. I mean, I don't watch the news, but I was quite aware that this all started. Well, it doesn't seem to affect children, but you old people, you better watch out. And the next thing you know, they're inoculating people down to age five. How is it that a parent, I mean, even if a parent was glued to mainstream news, how could they possibly fall for such an underhanded pitch? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, unreal. And, And here's the thing. So what I saw is that it exacerbated that Achilles heel. Okay. Not right away, which was interesting. Well, you know, in the beginning, oh, they had a little fever and parents think that's all normal and fine. No, but three months later, whatever their Achilles heel was, it had been exacerbated. Right. So like I said, you know, if the child was a little bit, let's say a child is a little bit argumentative. Okay. Now they're explosive. It's, it's so tragic. It was that fast. We're talking roughly Mm -hmm. three months. The, the results were already starting to surface. Yeah, we're seeing an aggravation, right? Or an inflammation, if you will, right? Of whatever their issues were, they are now worse. It seems to just, uh, it just attacks, at, attacks where, whatever your vulnerability is. All right, we've got roughly five minutes, Dr. Trebbing, and I'm very excited to get into hour two so you can start to offer solutions and things that people can actually put into place. In the last few minutes, What do you think is important to get out to the public facing hour? Well, you know, the developmental milestones recently changed. So I think it's really important for the public to pick up the old ones or or get yourself an old book so you know what the, the appropriate developmental milestones are. Because, you know... I always liken this to a flower, right? You you bloom and you blossom and you can't really force it. If you force it, you'll get like a, a weaker flower. But if you, it's the same with children. The developmental stages are all perfectly set up to bloom and blossom. And so now they've changed what these parameters are. They've put it under the guise of, oh, we're not looking at what 50% of the children are doing at this time. We're going to look at what 75% of the children are doing at this time. Whatever, it's all gobbledygook. Because what now what's happening is it's going to take longer for children to get the services they require. So now let's take a look at that, right? So now we have all these children who wore masks for a year. Let's take the young ones because it, it, it's so, this is where the, the problem with the masks is, is showing up so strongly in their language and communication skills. So before you had to have about 50 words before age two. And if you didn't have them, then we were concerned that you might have a language disorder. But mask a child 
for a year, two, however long they've been masked for, right? They don't get to see how the lips move. They don't get to hear the words of the masked people around them clearly. And now they're not speaking well, or they're not speaking much at all. And so now, ordinarily, we would have said, oh, this child now qualifies for services. But under the new milestones, you only have to say about 50 words at age two and a half. What? So now they don't get services. So they've drastically reduced what's expected. Yes. Yes. So the system is provably foul. How much is this screwed up very young children, not just being masked, but seeing nothing but masks? I'm talking about newborns and all the way up to one to two years. This has to have been doing massive psychological damage. Well, yeah, here's the thing. A lot of infants were home with their moms or their, their dads or, and, and not, and, and, and obviously they're not required to wear masks. I'd like to say obviously, but no, they're not, weren't wearing masks and they had their parents' faces, you know? So if that was the case, they're okay. Cause they don't know anything. Right. But it, but if the newborn and I've seen Parents talking to their newborn wearing masks. The parents are wearing masks. So that's problematic. And I don't even know where that's going yet. I mean, I, I can just think of it in terms of common sense. You know, they'll say, oh, wait for the studies. Yeah, it's time we have the studies. I don't know. Yeah, they imprint on every mask they see for the rest of their lives or something. Yeah, right. And so, so speaking and smiling, you know, smiling, that's such a, a young developmental stage. It doesn't happen. Because they've got nothing to imitate. And remember how important that imitation is. It's so critical. Another area, right? They took out crawling. So your doctor will no, no longer be asking if you, if you crawled. Come on. But if you take out crawling, you know, crawling gives us the core strength to lift up to then be able to walk. But that's okay because walking is now at 18 months. What? Most children are walking at 12 months. And honestly, 90, 90% of children are walking by 14 months. So this 75% at 18 months doesn't even fit in, doesn't even make sense. When did all these mainstream benchmarks start to shift so drastically into the obviously ludicrous areas that you're describing? How long ago do you feel like this shift really went full frontal? Well, in terms of documented, the milestones changed in February of this year. But in terms of what's happening with our children, that's just been, it's, it's been troubling for 30 years. I mean, all my career, these, these are concerns, right? But now they're just, it's almost like they're being normalized through these new milestones. I don't think I'd say almost Dr. Trebing and, and okay. I, I'd make another point. It seems like, Thank you, you know, Thank you. the world is screaming, Hey, parents, be good parents. Don't let these foul systems be be your measuring stick. But I think we're to the top of hour one, Dr. Trebing, which means we get to come back and breathe clean, free air. Can you please tell everyone one more time where they can find you? If you give out an email address in hour one, you will be overwhelmed. But if you do a web address or something like that, it's up to you. Thank you. So creativetherapies.net has a wealth of information that um, is useful. I also have a, um, an app that 
I actually didn't mark it, but it is up and I'm working on it. So, uh, but it goes over the, uh, the developmental milestones as they should be. And the app is called eBIPS. That's emotional, behavioral, intellectual, physical, and social. So that's a free app. It's my gift based on 30 years of work. And, um, I I would love for people to know that people can contact me through creativetherapies.net if they want a phone session. I also do family and home care days and I have some manuals. I, I prefer not to use Amazon so you can find them. I'll, I'll put it in the link as to how you can, if when a child doesn't play, um, it's a program for, for parents and other caregivers, therapists, they're, they're manuals. They're from, weekend uh, workshops. I have one on curative language when working with children. And there's also a post-pandemic family work lecture that has been um, dictated. Dictated? We'll we'll keep it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There it is. We're coming close on hour one. We're going to regroup here and come back for hour two. As I listen to Dr. Treving speak about all these artificial benchmarks and what's acceptable at this time and that, it occurs to me that for a lot of minds out there, using what I use to try to find, you know, I'm being, my head's spinning around. What's true? What do I do? I always go back to nature where there's no lie. So let's consider a human being in the garden trying to grow an iris. So they know, they'll look it up, this date, when you should plant your iris or when the iris should bloom. And here's part of the point I'm making. If you are in zone seven, it'll bloom around this time. If you're in zone 11, it'll bloom around this time. But all in all, all these zones in our area, probably between March and July, your iris or bearded iris will bloom. Now, no school district could come in one day and say, guess what? Bearded irises no longer bloom from March to July. From now on, the irises (laughs) are going to bloom in December because, damn it, we need them at Christmas time or something like that. And so think of the benchmarks we're talking about. We've covered the sleep cycles. How important is being in touch with the cycles of nature? And we've gone over this. That's why the equinoxes are lied about. That's why the time is shifted at both equinoxes. But Anyhow, I've made a point here so you can benchmark what's true in this world. You want to know what's true, walk outside and view the creation and then come back in as a good parent and do the damn best you can. Thank you. I loved that. Like you said, nature has no lie. That was a great example. Thanks, Crow. Nature has no lie. When you're confused, that's where you can go to be certain the truth will be shown you. But there is hour one of episode 407. The first hour is free at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. We're going to regroup, come back for hour two. It is my understanding that we're going to lay down some things folks can try to implement, which is always a big help. Thank you to Dr. Trebing, and I'll see you on the other side, Jason. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.